0: Yesterday was the 199th anniversary of William Ellery Channing's famous sermon, Unitarian Christianity. I know you all celebrate it, right? Uh, It was delivered at what is now the First Unitarian Church of Baltimore, Maryland, on May 5th, 1819. It was not First Unitarian then, because that's part of what that sermon, Unitarian Christianity, did, was to help our movement claim the name Unitarian Channing's sermon helped catalyze a movement toward forming the American Unitarian Association six years later in 1825, and I'll, loc- I'll likely focus more directly on Channing's sermon next year um, for the sermon's bicentennial. But uh, each year, this anniversary of Channing's sermon, I'm seeing it as kind of an opportunity to reflect on that Unitarian half of our Unitarian Universalist. Heritage, And in previous years around this time, I've preached about Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Parker, Joseph Priestley, Henry David Thoreau, um, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Six years into this gig, the names start adding up. And in future years, I look forward to telling you about many more of our famous Unitarian forebears. But for this morning, I want to invite us to reflect on another name who almost always shows up on lists of famous UUs. That is the writer, the public intellectual, and the leader in the transcendentalist movement, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson was born more than 200 years ago in 1803. His father was a liberal minister in what was known as, what became known as the Unitarian Movement. He served the prominent, now known as First Unitarian Boston. And Emerson's father was among quite a few of our Unitarian forebears who were both theologically liberal, but politically conservative. Um, Other examples of that would be, prominent examples would be William Howard Taft, uh, John C. Calhoun. Uh, And Ralph Waldo was one of eight children, and to be honest, during his early years, he was by all indications the least interesting, least enterprising, and least promising of his siblings. Although his name was later to become synonymous with a fierce individuality, for the first 30 years of his life, Emerson did little to distinguish himself from respectable mediocrity. He took the predictable steps for a local minister's son following the path that his father had you know, carved out for him. He uh, you know, headed in the same pr- pr- um, profession. He went to Boston Latin School, Harvard College. He did a stint of school teaching. He went to Harvard Divinity School, uh, accepted a socially desirable pastorate at Boston's Second Unitarian Church, was a member of the Boston Schools Committee, chaplain of the Massachusetts Senate like his father before him. He married the daughter of a well-to-do, merchant that was also one of his father's parishioners um, uh, graduating in the exact middle of his college class of 59 people he was reckoned and he reckoned himself at that point less promising than his three other harvard attending brothers in retrospect however there were seeds being planted that would later bear fruit in ways that no one could foresee at the time including emerson himself for instance, during his years as an undergraduate, his extracurricular reading was at least three times as extensive as his reading for courses. He would have done better in college if he would just focused on the reading for uh, courses. But at that time, he was already in the habit of getting up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning to attend his correspondence, to write in his journals. And these practices, again, although they didn't help him thrive academically in school, these lifelong habits of extensive reading and extensive writing are how we came to have eight volumes of his letters, 10 volumes of his collected works, and 16 volumes of his journals. He had a vast system of personal notebooks and indexes. He had indexes to indexes. He lived before the age of computers, right, so to keep himself organized. All of that eventually reached around 230 volumes filling four shelves of a good-sized bookcase. If you want to dive deeply into Emersonian studies, the primary sources are ready and waiting for you. And it's clear from Emerson's journals that he read, though, again, in this way that didn't help him for class, but he read in this highly idiosyncratic personal way. He was always looking for phrases, details, facts, metaphors, witticisms, aphorisms, ideas that particularly resonated with him personally for whatever confluence of reasons. He wasn't reading texts for what the professor was interested in or what other people were interested in, but what resonated with him. And looking back, it's clear that all of that effort was laying the groundwork for him to become, um, to do original writings. He, over time, just felt increasingly inexorably drawn not to merely be a collector of other people's writings or even a commentator or critic, but an original author in his own right. Of equal importance to his wide reading habits is that there were whole categories of books that he didn't read as much as he did read. He would not read theological or academic controversies, he disliked books intended to comment on other books. In a blunt moment he called those books by the dead for the dead, you know, because they were just they were lost. They weren't they had gotten away from original writing. He wanted original first-hand accounts. He thirsted for travel books, for memoirs, for testaments, statements of fate, their discovery, for poetry. He would read your poem or your novel, but not your opinion on other people's novels or other people's poems. To understand how Emerson came to take such a strong stance, I need to tell you a little bit about his relationship to his first wife. On Christmas Day of 1827, the 24-year-old Emerson met the 16-year-old Ellen Tucker. They were engaged a year later and fell deeply in love with one another. Uh, Less than a month after their engagement, Second Unitarian Church called Emerson to be their assistant minister, and his life seemed on a solid, if conventional, course. There were, however, early signs of future discontent. We have, for example, a letter that he wrote to his older brother that refers to his upcoming ordination as a minister, and typically people are really excited about but in, excited about that. but in his letter, he referred to his ordination day as his execution day. Uh, Given his personality, Emerson was perhaps right to be worried. Uh, Even though that uh, his job paid extremely well, he was an extremely private person. The job actually paid more than a full professor would make at Harvard even a decade later. But it required him to serve in a lot of public institutional roles. And perhaps if life had turned out differently, maybe he would have grudgingly persevered in, you know, that public role of prominent minister, But tragically, Ellen suffered from tuberculosis and died at age 20. They were married only two years. Emerson was utterly devastated and took up the practice of making a pilgrimage a few miles by foot to visit her grave every single day. Before Ellen's death, Emerson had questioned traditional theology, traditional religious practices, but after her death, his questioning was increasingly unrestrained. He just couldn't care anymore about what other people thought. A few months after her death, he began his first serious study of the Bhagavad Gita, a sacred scripture from the Hindu tradition, and Emerson quickly came to view that text as of equal significance to the Christian scriptures. But in an appropriately Emersonian way, the crisis point for his job as minister, it didn't come over some theoretical dispute over dogma. Uh, It came over a deeply personal refusal to continue presiding at the Christian ritual of the Lord's Supper. Here's a brief excerpt of the sermon he preached to his congregation in 1831 about that choice. He wrote, this mode of commemorating Christ is not suitable to me. He said, that is reason enough why I should abandon it. Even if I believed, and it wasn't clear that he did believe this, but he said, even if I did believe that it was enjoined by Jesus on his disciples and that he even contemplated making permanent this mode of commemoration, and yet on trial it was disagreeable to my own feelings, I should not adopt it. You know, He's saying, it's about me, it's not about Jesus. It wasn't a popular opinion in the 19th century. Uh, from a theologically conservative perspective, one could actually argue that Emerson had too many doubts to continue in his role as minister, but the, that he believed too little. But the actual problem, arguably, is that if anything, Emerson believed too much. He believed that to have integrity, you needed to actually believe the things you were preaching about. And that one shouldn't keep doing a ritual if it felt meaningless just because it had allegedly always been that way. He said, it is my desire to do nothing which I cannot do with my whole heart. Uh, He was fine with other people practicing communion, but he just couldn't keep doing it, especially leading it when he didn't believe in it, not with integrity. Another powerful example of the inner shift that Emerson was undergoing at this time is that a little more than a year after Ellen's death, he wrote the following brief entry in his journal. He said, I visited Ellen's tomb and I opened the coffin. What he was doing was not unheard of in the 19th century. Another Unitarian minister, James Freeman Clark, a childhood friend of Margaret Fuller, once opened the coffin of a woman he had been in love with when he was an undergraduate. Edgar Allan Poe's literary executor famously opened the coffin of his dead wife 40 days after the funeral, though he was Edgar Allan Poe's literary executor, right? So I'm like, you know, no super shock that he was macabre. But The the upshot seems to be that Emerson had to see for himself. Some part of him was not able to believe that Ellen was dead. He was still writing to her in his journal well more than a year later as if she were still alive. And we don't know exactly what motivated him on this occasion. He did write just that one line in his journal. But we do know that there's ample evidence of a powerful craving within him for direct, personal, unmediated experience. A few months later, he resigned from his position as minister, sold his household furniture, and sailed for Europe. Ellen's death had set Emerson loose. Excluded from conventional happiness, he abandoned a conventional life. He redoubled his efforts, albeit with a touch of panic, to live his own life and to think his own thoughts. As he began the process of exchanging his pulpit for a lectern on the Lyceum circuit, he settled into a new pattern, one that felt more sustainable and life-giving than the demands of a public ministry. In his mid-30s, he got up at 6, he had a cup of coffee, and then worked until 12 or 1. Uh, His uh, uh, lectures would typically be about 40 pages, so that's what he was sort of regularly working on. Uh, Incidentally, much later, he took up that old New England custom of having pie for breakfast. But it was his lectures that he began, where he began working out the ideas that, mature, that matured into his first published essay, Nature, which came out in 1836. And I invite you to hear just the incredible first paragraph of that essay, though it is very much worth rereading or revisiting in full. He writes, our age is retrospective. He's saying we're always looking back. It builds the sepulchres of the fathers. We're constantly building these monuments, these tombs, to people who were dead. Uh, It writes biographies, histories, criticisms. So we're constantly writing books about other people's lives, comments on things other people wrote. Um, criticism uh, or histories things about the past he says the foregoing generation beheld god and nature face to face we through their eyes why should not we also enjoy an original relationship to the universe why should not we have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition a religion by revelation to us and not a history of revelation to them Embosomed for a season in nature whose floods of life streams around us and through us and invites us by the powers they supply to action apportioned by nature, why should we grope around in the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of the faded wardrobe of what has gone before? The sun shines also today. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new men, new thoughts. Let us demand our own work, our own laws, our own worship. What a stirring call to co-create a world set free of what has come before and to be and that is deeply true and resonant with your own firsthand experience, which you know moves you, what you know you need. You can see why Emerson's landmark essay became a a manifesto of the Transcendentalist movement. It's a major reason why the first of our UU6 sources is not what other people tell us, but direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. There's so much more to say about Emerson's life and legacy, but I will limit myself to sharing two more significant pieces of Emerson's writing. The first is his Divinity School Address that Laura mentioned earlier. It was preached in 1838, two years after Nature was published. And it's also very much worth rereading in full. My favorite line encourages the graduating class of Harvard Divinity School to not waste their ministries just regurgitating what they had been taught to memorize about the past. But instead to open their minds, open their hearts, open their spirits to what was being revealed to them in the present moment. In Emerson's words, yourself a newborn bard of the Holy Ghost, cast behind you all conformity and acquaint men at first hand with deity, not second hand, but firsthand for themselves. And whereas New England Unitarians were known for embracing rationality and being emotionally repressed, uh, Emerson described Unitarianism that he had inherited as corpse cold. Emerson told these new ministers to seek the remedy of first soul, second soul, and ever more soul. Uh, for, after giving that, so he'd been invited to give that address for a number of reasons, including having published Nature two years earlier. Uh, to give you just a taste of how controversial it was at the time, he was not invited back to Harvard for 30 years. (laughs) Ironically, you know, he's now super famous at Harvard, and, and, and we actually have the, an endowed chair that is the Ralph Waldo Emerson Endowed Chair of Unitarian Universalism, but, uh, you know, things change over time. But it is that urge to open oneself to creativity and spirituality that connects to the final section of Emerson's writing that I wanted to be sure to touch on, and that is his 1841 essay titled Self-Reliance. It's been called the best single key to his life and influence, but again, ironically, even though this essay is vital to understanding Emerson, the entire essay is rarely read in full and closely. Rather, people tend to just read the title and assume they know what it meant and assume incorrectly. They assume that Emerson's coming from this kind of perspective of selfishness or narcissism, and not that there's not some of that there, but that's really to miss the point of what Emerson meant. What Emerson meant by self-reliance involved resisting what other selves, like it meant resisting peer pressure, what other selves were trying to um, pressure you into doing, hence his criticism of conformity, and resisting what your own even lowercase s self might be prompting you to do that's more of a selfish, short-term, shallow impulse emersonian self-reliance is not a reliance on the self in isolation but a relation to what we might what at least was then called the sort of uppercase capital s self something larger than yourself um, from which we receive truth you could sort of it's been described as emerson reading what we now call our first principle of inherent worth and dignity through our seventh principle of this interdependent web that we're part of something larger than ourselves Emersonian self-reliance is about setting aside history and tradition and opening yourself up to what original creation may be able to emerge in, through, and with you, through your individual expression. It's a practice intended to retrieve a person from what the state in which many adult people usually languish, acting and thinking merely based on what you think others expect of you rather than according to what you deeply believe and feel led to do. Here's just a few aphorisms from self-reliance. Whoso would be a man must be a non-conformist. A foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Is it so bad then to be misunderstood? Insist on yourself, never imitate, and nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Now, for what it's worth, I haven't fully drunk the Emersonian Kool-Aid. I don't completely agree with the worldview outlined in self-reliance. But that's part of the point. Emerson didn't want disciples. He wanted you to think for yourself, which certainly could uh, include disagreeing with him. But instead of ending on a point of divergence with Emerson, allow me to conclude with a final quote from that first published essay, Nature, which I think of frequently when I'm outside at night. This passage challenges us to, to see the world anew, to not take for granted this beautiful planet and our place in the universe. Emerson writes, if the stars should appear one night and never before, if they were to appear one night in a thousand years, how men would adore and believe. But every night come out these envoys of beauty and light the universe with their admonishing smile. Emerson is inviting us to, in a very Emersonian way, Wittgenstein famously said, don't think, look, right? Don't think about the world. Just look at it and see in a, wonder, in a wondrous way with wondering and see what you notice. Emerson is inviting us to cultivate a practice of seeing and experiencing the world anew in every present moment. And so in that Emersonian and transcendentalist spirit, let us rise, embody your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 298, wake now, my senses.